You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Firstly, I will not be running for president at the next CDU conference in Hamburg in December. And secondly, this fourth term is my last term as Chancellor of Germany. Angela Merkel calls time, although is clearly in no hurry to leave. My guests Terry Stiasny and Sebastian Borger will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including US President Donald Trump's latest promise to do something which he can't, UK Prime Minister Theresa May's hunt for future friends at the Nordic Council, and the Japanese train company overtraining its trainees with trains. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monaco. 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist, and Sebastian Borger, London correspondent for Der Tagesspiegel. And welcome both to the programme. And we will start in Germany, which now has three years to get used to the idea of having a Chancellor who is not Angela Merkel. Following another battering for her Christian Democratic Union in a local election at the weekend, this time in Hesse, Merkel announced that she would stand down as leader of the CDU in December and as leader of the country at the end of her presidency term in 2021, at which point she will have served for 16 years, overhauling Konrad Adenauer on the all-time list of long-serving chancellors, roughly equaling Helmut Kohl and falling six years short of Bismarck. Um, Sebastian, it, it, it's, it's very strange, I think, for any country when somebody stays in charge of it for, well, years running into double digits. How, how odd to Germans is the idea of her not being chancellor? It's comparatively odd, I suppose, for people of of, uh, my um, generation to the idea that Kohl wouldn't be our chancellor anymore. You know, my first election was um, um, when he had just become chancellor and and suddenly not to have him in the (laughs) chancellery anymore was was very surprising. And I now have uh, a son who is... Um, who was born, uh, well, he was seven when she became chancellor, so I suppose he wouldn't have been terribly interested in politics then. (laughs) He certainly is now, and he can't remember anything uh, beyond Angela Merkel. Very, very interesting. I think, although, um, if if I may say so, I doubt very much that she will actually um, do what she she told us, namely serve the whole term. I, I, I can't quite see her last beyond the end of next year um, I, you know she can't say that now of course but she is a lame duck and and particularly if someone gets elected as party chair man or woman who is uh, quite different in in his to be honest it's, it, it would be either of the ma- male candidates so far if they were elected um, their politics is so much more uh, to the right uh, to her that there would inevitably be friction um, and and so I, I I wouldn't be I, I can't see her survive for, for for that long also of course the problem is the social Democrats you know the the, the, the conservatives lost 11 percent so did the social Democrats in Hesse and and they are really struggling to to hold on to to any um, vestige of of being a, 
a, a, a party for for the whole country, basically. And and, and so that that's going to be a, a the, the next crisis in in the German federal government. Uh, Terry, as a, a political gambit, what do you think of the the long goodbye? I mean, as Sebastian quite rightly points out, you you're pretty much announcing yourself a lame duck, aren't you? It, it's it's the cue for everybody to start plotting against you. Well, exactly. I mean, it's 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 very dangerous unless you're pushed into it and in a system where you haven't obviously like in the US we know you have you have term limits and your time mm. is up at a certain date but I mean look at what happened I mean, Tony Blair was kind of forced into pre-announcing his departure and, and we knew why already we knew that at that point Gordon Brown had been itching to take over for years so exactly as Sebastian said the moment you say I'm off in a couple of years time everybody starts jockeying for position either sort of formally saying I will be a candidate or informally letting it be known that they will be a candidate and and exactly as as Sebastian says the the questions about the direction of policy start to start to come up and the questions about you know who who is going to follow in the in these you know admittedly huge big footsteps I mean these are going to be very big shoes to fill as you say for somebody who's been around for so long I mean you we forget that when Angela Merkel came to power, you know, her contemporary, her other European leaders were Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac. And we think that suddenly does, you know, put it into perspective quite how long She's ago that was. She's on her fourth French president. She's on her, what is it, third American president. She's on her fourth British prime minister. It, so, it is extraordinary, isn't it? I, I, I do want to ask you both about her legacy, which I think we can start contemplating, even if she insists she's still got three more years in the job. I, I, Focusing domestically, Sebastian, how will she be remembered within Germany as a German chancellor? What will she be seen to have accomplished? Stability. There's no doubt about that. She she, she profited greatly, of course, from the very um, painful reforms that the Social Democrats had implemented at the beginning of the century, um, particularly with cuts to Social Security and and unemployment benefits. Um, the economy was booming then and, and has done pretty well overall. I suppose you can always say if someone is in charge, they can, um, and the economy is doing well, they can to some extent um, claim that. Um, you will find a lot of people, I think, who will uh, say that she did the right thing uh, on the refugee uh, policy front, um, despite, of course, you also will have to say that it polarized the country and, and brought uh, a extra extraordinarily nasty, um, really right-wing uh, bordering on extremist party into the this Bundestag. Is the AFD, who I think, a, a, as of the weekend, I think now have a presence in every state house they do, in Germany? Indeed, yes. But of course, uh, and that's something to contemplate for, for the CDU, the Conservative delegates to, to their party conference. Um, if they if they elect someone a slightly more pronounced uh, conservative, um, then that's going to be a big problem for the AFD because they have, to some extent, moved into territory which Angela Merkel um, um, left behind. She she was she is she is a. a, a a figure of the centre of politics, for better or worse. But of course, in a democracy, sometimes you need a little bit of polarisation as well. You need clear uh, battle lines, and and 
she blurred them to an extent which may not have been entirely healthy. And as a, as a global figure, Terry, does she have an enduring legacy on that front? Is it, is it just this idea that has coalesced around her, especially in the last few years, as a, a, a fixed point of stability and sanity? Or is she a more significant global leader than that? Um, I think, yeah, partly through her longevity, that, you know, that sense of stability. I think what she, her main achievement will have been to consolidate Germany as one country and partly, and Germany's place in the world. Because it's always been a very difficult debate as to how much Germany should engage, how much, you know, act of an active role Germany can play in terms of foreign policy. I mean, as you were sort of referring to, you know, we we shouldn't forget she was the first post-reunification chancellor to actually have come from the east uh, and although it's not to say there aren't and still the problems and matters. the first woman of it course matters. i mean that's massive yeah. massively important and not to say there aren't still issues not to say we don't look further east into uh, the rest of eastern europe and see some of those issues and problems still bubbling up but the, yes the fact that as you say she uh, said that we are going to be a country that is open to refugees to come and settle yes that has caused her political problems in the short term but as as a figure that was yeah consolidating and uh, Germany's role, Germany's role within Europe and her role, its role within the world. I think yeah she was an important force for stability and continuity. Okay, well let's move along now to the United States, where President Donald Trump has announced that he intends to end birthright citizenship, which he can't, and complained that the United States is the only country which allows it, which it isn't. At the very real risk of preempting the discussion, it seems a transparent enough attempt by Trump, with Tuesday's midterm elections looming, to rerun his favourite play, i.e. propagating the obviously fat-headed fear that the mightiest nation ever gathered beneath one flag faces mortal threat in the shape of a couple of thousand of Honduran asylum seekers, or as Trump and his partisan media are currently calling them with all but thunderclap sound effects, the caravan. Um, Sebastian, a, a reminder to us all that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States says, and I quote, all persons born or naturalised in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Um, do we imagine that Trump knows the 14th Amendment from a hole in the ground? Talking, we've, we've just talked about uh, an anchor of stability and rational thought in, in the world of, of uh, politics, haven't we? And, and now we've come to the opposite. And, and that's part of the reason, I suppose, why Merkel was and is well looked upon. This, this gentleman is... Um, is um, <laughs> It's very difficult to to talk about him in 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 a in a serious manner. But on the other hand, you know, um, he's 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 in he's been in charge now for almost two years. Um, the 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 American economy is booming. I can see a, a, a big crisis looming on the horizon, but for the time being, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the 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 um, all the all the figures are up. Um, he has he has bullied Canada and Mexico into a new trade agreement, um, and he cl he's clearly able to uh, to rally the, the the his party base. I wouldn't be surprised if all the hopes of the Democrats to to retake uh, at least parts of Congress uh, next week w will be dashed. I I've, I fear the worst, to be honest. And whether the problem, of course, is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter anymore to people whether their president. Ha ha has even heard of the 14th Amendment or indeed any other amendment of the Constitution. 
they don't care. They don't care. Which is an interesting point right there, Terry. The question of why uh, Trump supporters in particular don't care that he's talking obvious rubbish, which in it, which in this case he is. I mean, he simply cannot of his own fiat rescind amendments of the Constitution. He just can't. Um, it simply isn't the case that the United States is the only country uh, which permits birthright citizenship. So by definition, this is a promise which can come to absolutely nothing, uh, as so many of his promises do. But why doesn't that bother his base? Uh, I think because it manages to bounce people off the topics that they were talking about before. And so you know, he sets things running. And to a certain extent, we kind of go chasing after them, even though we're saying and everybody's reporting and the Associated Press has had to delete things, be saying we had to delete our tweet because it failed to note that the president's statement was <laughs> incorrect, which is in a massive correction from the you know news agency. Uh, but then everybody gets into a big debate about, you know, can you repeal the 14th Amendment? How do you repeal the 14th Amendment? And maybe it sort of takes people's eyes off, you know, what has just happened in Pittsburgh and, you know, what is uh, what has been going on in terms of the the letter bombs sent to you know people in the democratic party and, and trump's critics so he does seem to have a knack for setting setting these issues running that true or not you know bear, whatever relation they bear to reality they 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 sort of set the, they set a debate going and you know we're all going kind of Oh, look, this is is interesting. I mean, yes, you can't, you know, yes, he can't uh, repeal the 14th Amendment. Yes, only one amendment has ever been repealed, you know, in the past, which was prohibition. You know, yes, it's... Which was an amendment repealing another amendment. An amendment repealing another amendment by amending it. It's the cat's principle, isn't it? You throw something on the table, which is so mm, outrageous that people talk about it. It's partly that, but it is also... It is his favourite play. He he literally launched his presidential campaign by talking about Mexicans as drug dealers and rapists. He he launched his entry into politics by propagating the idiotic and racist myth that Barack Obama was not entitled to be an American citizen. This one works for him. The question is, um, and I guess it, it's not just about America in which this works, Sebastian, but, but appealing to fear of the immigrant. Why does it always work? Well, look, we, I think we are confronted with, uh, with uh, a society um, with lots of changes in, in a, at a speed that is, um, when you look at human history, quite remarkable, um, if, if, if not unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, being uh, of uh, older vintage, can remember a time when, when there were telephones in the... It, you know, in the uh, in the main corridor of the house, and you had to go to the telephone and <laughs> and, and, and and speak. You know, seriously. But I mean, look at the, look at a whole generation of young people who who can't imagine that concept anymore, or, or or of television programs which which really the whole nation was watching at the same time. It, very rarely happens anymore and of course going with that is that a lot of people uh, of of not so uh, um, good education and, and, and skills are being left behind by, by a by a society which is increasingly technological and, and those tend to be again because immigrants tend to be uh, fairly uh, industrious and and willing to get up uh, go the extra mile get up 
an hour earlier, uh, they, 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 the, the, the ones, the people who, who've, who've been born into the country, are being left behind and are feeling that. And, and he's picking them up by their fears. I think that's a, a, a huge part of it. Just a final thought on this one, uh, Terry, going back to that point you made about AP deleting that uh, and semi-apologising for that tweet earlier. Are the media getting any better at covering Trump? Because the trouble is that you can't just write him off as a bloviating, meretricious attention seeker. He's president of the United States. When he says things, they do need to be reported. But is the media, especially the, the, the mainstream American media, getting better at dealing with the fact that the president of the United States routinely just says stuff which is demonstrably untrue? I think uh, certain sections of, of the US media are. I mean, it is always hard. I've done enough, you know, breaking news reporting in my time to know that, yeah, you report at first the thing that somebody has said. And in the immediate moment, you know, although you know these things in the back of your head, you probably don't have exact time to go and check all the references and, you know, exactly exactly all the points that somebody is wrong on. But fair enough, then later go back and say, yes, this is untrue, that is untrue. But yeah, as you say, the, the, also you forget the respect that there is in the US press corps for the president. It's the, one of the few places in the world where when you're, the leader comes in, everybody stands up. And journalists don't generally, they don't applaud and they don't stand up for pretty much anybody. Um, but there is a respect for the office. And I think the difficulty for people reporting on that is to square, you know, the tradition of the respect for the office of the office of the president, and the fact that, you know, the president is coming out and saying things that are flat out untrue. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Terry Stiastny and Sebastian Borger. Coming up next, Theresa May speaks at the Nordic Council, but she's getting used to frosty receptions. I'm here all week, folks. On Wednesday, October the 31st, join me, Andrew Tuck, and the Urbanist team, plus a panel of special guests for an evening of discussion and a drink or two at Midori House in London to celebrate the launch of the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities. In our latest book, published with Gestalten, Monocle's editors unpack what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need help fixing up your own metropolis. Why not come along? You'll receive a copy of the book and the chance to hear sparkling insights from some leading lights in urbanism. Find out more about the book and about this month's fantastic Urbanist Live event on the 31st of October and buy tickets at monocle.com right now. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Terry Stiastny and Sebastian Borger. Now, if UK Prime Minister hoped that Oslo would be far enough away to avoid any further annoying questions about Brexit, she will have been disappointed. Speaking at the Nordic Council summit in Oslo, she found herself having to emphasise that the British people would not be given a vote on any Brexit deal she might be able to strike, and declaring that nor would she hold another general election, though she has, of course, said that before, even if she was given cause to wish she hadn't. Uh, in other notes, Noteworthy developments after other Nordic Council members appeared unenthused by the so-called Norway for Now option in which the UK would temporarily enter the European economic area while it ponders the rest of the way out of the EU. Um, Terry, does this seem a, a useful use of the Prime Minister's time at this juncture, Brexit being supposed to happen in, what are we up to now, five more months? And still nobody has any real clue what it's going to look like. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, choice for Theresa May to have gone to uh, address this. She, on the one hand, she's obviously trying to win over new friends amongst you know Nordic countries that those which aren't within the EU as well as uh, those which are. Um, but she she and her advisers must have known that a trip to Oslo would sort of revive all the discussion of can Britain be like Norway? Can Britain have a sort of Norway type relationship with the EU? Um, yeah, as you say, um, <laughs> the Norwegian prime minister was kind of slightly politely uh, dismissive of that idea saying well you know that's a that's a very nice idea but you know partly you haven't got the time and partly we might we might not let you join the club that you may want to consider joining well uh, not temporarily possibly mm. significantly i thought the norwegians seemed quite into the idea of the uk having permanent eea or norway like status which i mean it's that doesn't seem to be i think that is something that is not necessarily going to be acceptable to the part of the conservative party that are saying norway for now but not forever because yeah as you say the the efta and the ea countries are kind of saying well you know if you want to join our club then you know you as you say you you can't join it with, with one eye on the exit door at the same time as at the same time as you come in i mean also it is again a really a complicated thing to do it's not as straightforward as the people who are pre- proposing norway as an option uh, would like to suggest but i think you know you wouldn't you wouldn't go to oslo and start making a speech speeches and and meeting all the things unless you wanted that somehow to be in people's in people's minds as an option so i'm not i'm not quite sure what she what she is trying to do here and i'm not sure whether anybody has thought through uh what those options precisely are but it'll be quite interesting to see Imagine people people involved in Brexit mm. not thinking through the options. <laughs> <laughs> Can I disagree with Terry? Because I think for the British Prime Minister at this juncture to go out and talk to people, regardless, you know, she gave a speech where she said we all believe in the same thing and we are really good friends and we want to be remain friends after Brexit. Blah, she, blah, blah. She made a slightly laboured abbot joke as well. Exactly. As now appears to be compulsory. That, that's compulsory. But, but look... Um, she she then had a chance to speak to all these prime ministers, whether in the EU or not, uh, privately. I think that's important. You know, I I think the British diplomacy has has for far too long relied on um, bashing Brussels um, and and stroking Angela Merkel, and it. it it clearly hasn't worked. And so they're trying to, to spread their wings. I think that's a good idea. But secondly, I can, I'm, I'm totally um, flabbergasted by this Norway for now idea. Nick Bowles, who, of course, is the, is the author of this plan, mm. is a seriously brilliant uh, conservative MP who, who was the head of a, of a think tank before he, he, he entered parliament. I, I can't for the life of me see... I mean. Can't he see the arrogance that 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 is involved in in a, in in a, if they said, look, we'd like to. This is the solution. This is our this is our way out. Uh, we'd like to go um, for 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 this kind of option. Great. I think I think there'd be plenty of people, Norway amongst them, helping the UK along. But of course, you would have to ditch the DUP. That that the totally. Uh, off their rocket, Northern Irish unionists, and also she would ha- she would have to lo- she would lose at least uh, two, maybe three dozen of her Tory MPs. Well, what is it? Is it the country that needs a deal, or is it still the the civil war within the Conservative Party? Sooner or later, 
Theresa May will have to decide, is she a stateswoman or is she a failed party leader? Given, Terry, what Sebastian has just laid out there, which I think was a, a fairly neat summation of the uh, the swamp in which Theresa May is currently thrashing, might it be possible, do you think, that her fellow leaders, one of the reasons she wants to go and talk to her fellow lit national leaders face-to-face, is that they might have a measure of sympathy for her. They will understand, surely, that she is somebody who feels like she has been instructed by her people to carry out an obviously impossible task, uh, which she's not going to be able to do in any way without somebody giving her a hand they may well have some sympathy for her they may well also think you know why are you coming to us now when maybe coming to us two years ago and looking at this as a possible option might have got you a lot further down a route that is you know acceptable to as you say you know part of the conservative party possibly you know you could probably peel off quite a few uh, labor mps in favor of a an eea or an efta type agreement you know with various provisos because you have to still work out what to do about free movement what to do about uh, budget uh, contributions what to do about you know some of these things we thought you might have had solved by now Um, but again sort of popping up you know just at the end of October when you've got just a few months left to suddenly say I'm coming to be your new lovely friend uh, people might look at that a little bit cynically. Well far be it from journalists to criticise anybody else for trying to do everything with seconds before deadline Uh, but but funnily to finally, funnily, both in fact, to Japan uh, specifically to West Japan Railway where the person whose job it is to say guys, guys at meetings when someone advances an especially terrible idea has clearly been on holiday West Japan Railway decided that new employees could not be trusted to assume that standing close to a bullet train travelling at 300 kilometres an hour was unwise, so to demonstrate the forces in play, trainees were compelled to squat in a trough between two sets of tracks as the trains whooshed around their ears, Following understandable complaints from the trainees' union, this inexplicable practice has been abandoned. Um, I, I don't even know where to start with that. It is it is one of these instances where nobody uh, asked the always important question, what could possibly go wrong? But I, I, I did want to ask you both, whether you, or I'll ask you first, Terry, whether you've ever been subjected to especially terrible, inane or weird training regimes. I, I have not, because I am entirely unqualified to actually do anything. <laughs> I worked for the BBC for a long time, so we had lots of weird training <laughs> courses. <laughs> I've, uh, I think the things that, that spring to mind most immediately, and I have to say, I was not put in any actual danger. I was not made to lie down on train tracks or anything like that. You know, there, there were courses on health and safety and how to lift things so that you didn't hurt yourself. Um, but the most dangerous thing was being mock kidnapped on a hostile environment course where you had to do that. If you were sort of go on these courses where you learn uh, how to keep yourself safe in a, in a war zone or such like, and we did have these kind of ex-SAS or Marine guys come up to you, put a bag on your head and pr- pretend to point a gun at you and say I've, that I've spoken, you've been kidnapped. I've spoken, <laughs> to, the sol- I've spoken to some soldiers who've been the soldiers on those courses yeah. and as one of them said to me, getting paid quite good money to rough up a bunch of journalists they for the weekend. It. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it, it's an ab- absolute holiday for them. What's mm. wrong with that? I don't... I don't. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. No, it's quite a good... If, I mean, if, say, if your employer school, sends yeah. you somewhere, oh, yeah. which, is, mm. which, which, which carries with it the danger of that mm. kind of situation, mm. I think they might as well try to to, to prepare you yeah, for I'm it. I'm not saying it was a bad. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm, they were, you know, being. Responsible. I'm also not at all. Danger, I'm, but, I, I disagree entirely with Andrew about the about <laughs> the railway. No, seriously, you've got to. If you work at a, in a railway which deals with those kind of trains, I think it's a brilliant idea to 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 force people to actually experience. You you know you as well as any other journalist knows. Uh, 
what a difference it makes to actually experience something rather than uh, only writing or, or talking about it. If you experience that force, you 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 will you will deal with it in a different way. If you experience an autopsy, as I did as a crime reporter, it's 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 just different. You 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 know something about the dignity of human life and 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 the end of it, which which other people might not. You know, I I honestly I don't think that. That's a fair way to to go about it. Whereas, if you are a school governor in Britain and you're being sent on a training course uh, about uh, how to deal with finances, and then you, uh, you you're part of the finance committee and you realize that you have no say in the finances whatsoever, that's something which is totally uh, <laughs> useless forever. You're speaking from personal experience. I certainly there. do. Yes, 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 yes. I was the most inefficient school governor for eight years. The school is still running. I'm happy to report. Well, that's something. Um, Terry, did, did the BBC have any other arcane rituals, trainings, oh, or instructions? I, yeah, probably shouldn't. You know, it's probably shouldn't reveal oh, these. But uh, we we did regularly kill off senior members of the royal family. Not not for real. <laughs> not in a crime reporter sense. I hasten to add. We're going to have a lot of fun editing B- that clip. <laughs> the BBC re- regularly rehearses what to do in the event of a royal death so every often every so often they come up with strange scenarios as to who who has died and you had to work it out and then the biggest danger being that someone misheard this and reported this as fact when it was of course only a rehearsal as it was always a bit scary that does bring us to the end of today's show terry stiasny and sebastian borger thank you for joining us at midori house the show was produced by bill luti and augustin machilari research by fernando augusto pacheco and barbara maimoni our studio manager was kenya scarlet midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.